written. Although we occasionally do different kinds of teaching and preaching here at Kirkpatrick, one of our absolute bread and butter uh, staple activities is to just look at passages of God's Word as they are in Scripture and try to hear them and understand them. So Luke's Gospel, we're going to try this springtime to study not the whole thing. You probably could see that it would take a while to get through Luke's Gospel at the rate that we're going at. We're going to do about the first nine chapters, uh, and it'll take us round about till Easter time uh, to do that. So have that open before you. Often I would pray with a a congregation before we come to look at God's Word that that He would speak to us. We've already done that um, in that song. I I was trying to pay attention to the words of it, and it's a wonderful uh, prayer to pray any time before we come to God's Word. But let's let's just for a couple of seconds uh, invite the Spirit to be here and to, to speak. Uh, Lord, we've already invited you in the words of this song to come and to speak to us. Um, Lord, there are all sorts of reasons why we might not hear you today. Uh, We might have a sense of having heard it all before. We might have hearts that are hard because of particular things going on in our lives at the moment. Hurts that we have that we don't want to hear from you. Or sin in our lives, that uh, means we'd rather turn our backs to you. Lord, I pray that we would be like that good soil in Jesus' parable, that we'd be able to take what you give us now, hear it, and allow it to do your work in our lives. Amen. So we're in Luke's gospel. We're going to be there till Easter time. The, The studies. Um, we've called the Savior of the world. This week I did something that had been putting off for a wee while. I stepped on the bathroom scales for the first time in 2016. I, I don't know if people have had a chance to do that yet. I was able to put it off for a wee while because the battery in our scales was gone. So that was quite a good excuse just to uh, put off the um, but anyway, got a new battery, put it in, and jumped on the scales. And when the figures finally settled, I don't know if anybody has a digital scale. I find that each time I get on, it gives a slightly different score. So I keep getting on, hoping for a, a lower score to kick in. But, but anyway, eventually it settles, and, and there's the score. I tell you that not because I want to talk about uh, our, our weight or talk about New Year's resolutions or anything like that, just because it, it put me in mind of uh, an experience I had around about two years ago. I went to see my own GP, and I'd been with him a little bit for the months before because I'd been suffering from a sore back. So he'd been working with me to check how that was going. I'd had my shirt off, and he'd been checking my posture. And just as I was putting my shirt back on, he said, "Uh, by the way, Christoph, you're half a stone overweight. And I remember making my way home from the GP, going, what? Nobody's ever told me that I'm overweight before. I was, I was quite shocked. So I was on my way home, and I was thinking, goodness. And I felt myself getting a, wee bit, getting a wee bit cross. I thought, yeah, I know I'm a bit out of shape. I've had this sore back. 
but I'm not as bad as other people. Or, you know, I had all these rationalizations. And, and I remember speaking to a few other people, and they were, they were like, were you not furious? I can't believe he said that to you. Within a couple of days, after I had a chance to reflect on what the GP had said to me that day in his surgery, I realized that it wasn't cross. Not at all. At least that's not where my heart had settled. I discovered instead that I was immensely grateful. Grateful for what that GP said to me that day. Grateful that there was somebody in my life who cared enough about my health and my well-being to speak the truth to me, even if I might not want to hear it. What a gift, I thought. Someone who's willing to tell me what's wrong so that it can be made right. Cross? No. Just grateful. It's not an entirely unfamiliar dilemma, is it? We've all had that experience where somebody points out uh, something to us, some way in which um, our, our lives aren't quite what they could be or should be, some way in which we're not living up to, to being who God has made us to be. And whenever anybody takes the courageous step to point that out to us, we, we have this dilemma. Do I get cross do I get defensive? Do I write them off? And do I say, you know, shut up, and that's the last time I'll be listening to you? Or do I find something in my heart that says, what if they're right? What if I have lost my way? What if I need to come back to something else? This morning, John chapter 3, that's the territory we're in. John is not unlike my GP. He's the guy saying the hard stuff. And we get to decide whether we're going to be cross about that or grateful. I'm going to look at these 20 verses. I'm going to bring stuff together under three headings. Uh, first of all, we're going to think about John's times, John's challenge, and then John's Messiah. First of all, John's times. Luke tells us in the opening verses, and I felt for Mark a wee bit as he was reading this, um, the, the guys with the names are all there um, and the places they come from. And So he tells us that he's writing about the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, time when Pontius Pilate's governor of Judea, Herod is tetrarch of Galilee, Philip tetrarch of whatever those places are, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Just in case we're still not sure what time he's talking about, he goes on and he gives us... So those are the political uh, reference points. He gives us religious reference points when he tells us that it was a high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Luke's done this a couple of times in his gospel before, and we haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to it, but at the start of his gospel, whenever he prepares us for John's death, he tells us that it happened while Herod was king of Judea. That's when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Whenever he tells us about Jesus' birth, he tells us, doesn't he, and we know this from our carol services, it's when Caesar Augustus had issued a decree. It was when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So 
This is the third time now in these opening chapters that Luke takes his events and he locks them into history, the history of his time. And I want to pause for a second, just before we charge into the the text and look at it. Whenever you look at these dates that he's given us here or these uh, rules that he's given us here, you find that, that Luke's claims can be verified historically. There was a Pontius Pilate who governed Judea from 26 to 36 AD. There was a Herod Antipas in Galilee from 4 BC to 39 AD. There's a, a brother, Philip, who rules in another region from 4 BC to 34 AD. And then more recently, there's been more evidence uncovered for this guy, Lysanias, who ruled from 15 to 30 AD. So Luke claims that the events he's talking about happened while all four of these guys were ruling. And it's an educated guess that Jesus, uh, John's ministry and then the ministry of Jesus began in either 26 or 27 AD. And if you notice, they fall 26, 27 AD falls within the rules and reigns of all of these guys. Now, now bear in mind what Luke told us at the start of his gospel. He said, I've been meticulous in my research before I write this. What is it he said in verse 1 of chapter 1? He's carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that Theophilus may know the certainty of the things he's been taught. Folks, it's important that we get to say this early in our series in Luke's gospel. This gospel record, which seems incredibly remote in in time and also in in geography, and it's written in a style that's very different from a a modern-day journalist's style. This is not a fairy tale. Okay? Okay? Luke's writing history. It is the history of Jesus Christ. It's not a fairy tale, but as we'll see today and as we read further into the gospel, it's not a kid's story either. And I think this is the... So people who maybe don't gather in a community like this might make the first mistake and say, well, the Bible, why would you believe that? Sure, it's all a fairy story. I'll leave that behind altogether. But in a community like ours, I think there's another danger, and that's that we believe the Gospels are kids' stories. And there's a reason for that. We first, for many of us, learn these stories when we're very young. We learn them with beautifully illustrated pictures, very uh, well-told stories, um, and it all makes a whole lot of sense to us when we're six and when we're seven and when we're eight. And we imagine oftentimes as grown-ups that Jesus and the Gospels, I know that. I did that in Sunday school. There's nothing new here. Folks, I, I want to challenge you. I particularly want to challenge our young people who are in church for the first or the early stages of their, their uh, church-coming career. Don't, don't think that the Gospels, the stories of Jesus Christ are for children. Uh, you'll see today they're, they're not. They're the kind of thing you would keep your children away from. Some of what Jesus says would it be a 15 or an 18. It's, this is, and for, for anybody this morning who has never read the gospel as a grown-up, 
and brought the same kind of thinking to it that you would to any other text, I'd invite you today, get, get into this. See if you can keep up with the, the challenging and life-changing message about Jesus. So that's the first thing, very quickly, John's times. John's message, this is really where we need to spend the majority of our time today. What, what is his message? This last and greatest of the prophets, as Jesus would later call him. What is the message he brings? He's breaking centuries of silence. There hasn't been a prophet for hundreds of years. What's the message he brings to God's people from God? Well, have a look at the text there. He's not a charmer, is he? Look at verse 7. First words we have from John in Luke's gospel. He looks at the crowd in front of him. You brood of vipers! It's just, you sort of wonder how that worked. How he drew a crowd. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Remember what John's job is. John's job is to prepare people for the coming of of Jesus Christ. That's what the angel Gabriel told his dad in chapter 1, that he'd make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he does that, I think, by ripping off any thin veneer of respectability that they have. He shows what's wrong with their hearts. Now, why would he do that? Why would a, a preacher choose to do that. Surely there's better, more winsome ways to win a crowd. I think it's because John knows the kind of thing that we were talking about in our memory verse earlier today. We need to know there's something wrong before we'll come to Jesus to see it made right. We need to know we're sick. Otherwise, we don't bother to come to the doctor. We need to hear that we're sinners before we'll want to hear about a Savior. So John doesn't just pull off their veneer. He he reaches right in and challenges their religious presumption. Look at verse 8. He says, Don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abram as a father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. He's saying, "Don't, Don't go on to me about your ancestors. I know you're Jewish. We're all Jewish here. I think if he was talking to us today, he'd say, don't go on to me about being a Presbyterian back three or six or 30 generations. He'd probably be saying, don't, don't even go on all the time about your Christian parents and the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. He'd say, this is about you And it's about now, here and now. And he goes on to warn them that they're in danger. Look at verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So so John's unsettling these people in a very, very dramatic way. What, What is it he wants from them? What's he driving at? Look at He's already told us in verse 8, he says he wants them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He wants repentance. He wants to call people to repentance. I've probably said this many times before, but I don't know how recently I've said it. Um, Repentance 
isn't so much to do with feeling sorry about our sins. That's maybe where we start as children in understanding repentance. You see, we can feel sorry about wrong things that we've done for any number of good or bad reasons. But we can feel sorry for our sins without repenting. Because you see, repentance is a change. It's a change of heart and mind in our relationship to God. It's, and and I'm sure I've explained it to you in these terms before, we tend to live our lives walking away from God, resisting his rule, uh, trying to make our own way in the world, having our own sense of who's boss. And repentance requires us to say, not, not only I'm wrong about that, but I'm, so, I'm, or I'm sorry about that. I'm wrong about that. So I'm going to turn and come back into reality, the place where God is the king, where I live under his rule and under his blessing. That's what repentance really is. So John's message is a message of repentance. And the interesting thing is, when you read a passage like this and you think, Flip, that's hard going, the interesting thing is, he's not alone. Jesus begins his preaching, we'll see it soon, calling people to repentance. The apostles of the New Testament, when they're preaching on Pentecost, they say, repent and believe every one of you. It seems from John's message today, Jesus' teaching from the whole of the New Testament, that it's impossible to enter into a life with God without some turnaround moment, without a U-turn, without things being significantly different than they are today. John preaches this message, and interestingly, no matter how hard a message it was for people to hear, a lot of them seemed to respond, and so they asked him, well, what, what do we do? If you look there, you'll see them asking him, what then should we do? And John gives different examples of how different ones of them might respond. And that makes sense, because actually we're all different. The, the forms that our change of behavior needs to, need to take will be different for each one of us. So there you have him, John he says to his audience, quit hoarding clothes and food when you could be sharing with the poor. Don't allow your greed to lead you to corruption when you could be content with what you have. It's interesting. It looks like he's saying different things. Do, do you know what he's, you see what he's talking about there under one umbrella? Materialism. Stuff. So stuff seemed to be a problem for the people of John's day. And he called it out. And if he was here today, I'm just wondering whether he might choose to raise the same subject.
Repentance is what we're talking about today. I thought I'd take a moment to share with you a little of my experience of repentance in my life. I remember the first and fundamental repentance I can remember in my walk with God. So, although this might sound strange to you, um, you, you'll have your own view on what I share here. It was as an eight-year-old boy that I had a sense of making that transition that I just described to you. Even at that young age, I had a sense of what it meant to cling to life on my own terms, where I would define what was right and wrong and where I would um, go into the future choosing my own way, where I was boss, if you like. A little boss, but boss nevertheless. I remember as an eight-year-old, as I was with my mom in a caravan in Newcastle, understanding what Jesus Christ had done for me and understanding that I no longer wanted to live for my own agenda. And I made that fundamental turnaround. Now, don't get me wrong. That, that then is the beginning. Every experience along the way, I get a chance to grow into that understanding or somehow to, to diminish it a little bit. But it happened then. My fundamental turnaround moment that's made sense of the rest of my life since. So you've maybe heard about that. Every single person has a need to repent. There it is. That's that's one person's story. I was thinking then about what forms and what shape repentance has taken in my life since. There was a time when I was a young adult um, where I, I suppose for a few years I had this accelerated sense of everything going very well for me. Things were going well in career. Uh, I had a a good relationship. Um, I just thought I was the boy, you know, starting to believe my own hype. And then I remember in a space of a few months how it all crashed. The Lord humbled me and he took all that away, everything that I had been relying on for my sense of myself and my identity. And he brought me to my knees, and thank God, the way I chose to respond in that moment was to repent, to see that 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 wasn't the person I wanted to become, Um, and to to turn again, and to to come back to a, a more Godward vision in my life. This repentance really, this. This desire to change our behavior so that it mirrors the gospel and the character of Jesus Christ, that, that is never going to leave me. I'm always going to have new questions. I can remember a time when our kids were young, and I imagined it was okay for me as a, a young father to continue to have the same level of me time that I would always have had before we had young children. I didn't notice or choose to notice the impact that our young children were having on Claire. I thought, I'll pretend I don't see that. I'll just get on. 
With Claire's help and by God's grace, I got to see the error of my ways. God showed me that he is not honored by male chauvinism, even when it has a veneer of Christian ministry over the top of it. I've repented of that, and I'm still trying to work out what it means to be a good husband and a good dad. As I was preparing to preach this morning, I was wondering, well, what's, what's today's invitation to repentance for me? And, and it's not always easy to know. You can reach for something weird. You, you can feel like, oh, I should repent and try to find something. I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, so I've been praying and I've been talking, talking to Claire yesterday. What, what form might repentance take? I suppose I'm still open to that. This, this text has made a bit of a mark on me. Um, but I thought I'd say this to you. If you can see any area in my life where I'm failing to live for Jesus Christ as well as I might, particularly if you're somebody who's close enough to me to know and understand my life, if you see something that shows a wrong attitude towards God, please tell me. Because I dearly want to repent. I want to receive God's forgiveness. I want to live better than, than I live today. So we've talked about John's times. We've talked about, and we've placed them in history We've talked about John's message, this call for repentance before God. Very briefly, a couple of minutes, the the Messiah, John's Messiah. John only starts talking about this Messiah. You'll notice the passage, he doesn't talk a lot about Jesus. He only really talks about Jesus when other people raise the subject. They say to John, John, you must be the Messiah. And he says, no way. It's not me. I'm not even worthy to be his lowest servant. I couldn't untie the thongs of his sandals. See the way I've been baptizing with water, he says. He's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour his own life inside of you. Just wait a wee moment longer. The Messiah's coming. That's John's message about Jesus. I want you to notice, though, a little of of what he calls us to anticipate about Jesus, and I think you'll be surprised. I found it surprising and stark. If we're running with some sort of sentimental view of Jesus Christ, that he's the one who comes and brings everyone together and says everything's all right and everything's together and all right, then this passage is sobering. Because John says something different. He talks about Jesus' baptism, and he says that he'll come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's going to immerse people in two two realities. He's going to immerse them either in the reality of the presence of his Spirit or in the realities of of fire for those who reject him. Fire is the biblical image of judgment. And you see, if we've understood John properly at this point, 
we shouldn't expect that Jesus has come to bring everyone together. It seems that he'll rather have the opposite effect, that he'll, he'll separate people on the basis of their response to him. You're saying, Christoph, I don't see that. That's not how I understand the baptism sentence there. We'll read on in the passage. Verse 17. For John's Jewish agricultural community, there's hardly a better image for separating than the image of a winnowing fork. It's the thing you use to toss your, your gathered crop so that the, the chaff, the, the unwanted parts of the, the crop are, are pulled to one side and the grain that you're going to use goes to the other. It's, it's all about separating. And John has this image of Jesus. He says he's got, he's got the, the, the winnowing fork in his hand. You see, Jesus Christ comes, and whether we like it or not, he confronts us all with the reality. You're for him or you're against him. Folks, I want to say something as I close. This call to repentance, don't get me wrong, I I know that what I'm saying here today is hard to hear. And I know that it's entirely out of step with the way our culture thinks. And I know that in some cases you might feel inclined, therefore, to dismiss it. You might say, that's the bad old stuff back again. That's, that's the preacher with his hellfire and brimstone. That's the, the call to repentance. That's why people have moved on and left the church behind. We live in a culture that says something very different, don't we? We live in a culture that says, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all Okay everybody's okay. There's no change needed here. We just need to learn to love ourselves and accept ourselves better. That's what our culture says. So this is a different message. I believe that something crucial and beautiful goes missing when we leave behind the message of repentance that's at the heart of the Christian gospel. I use that word gospel deliberately. Did you notice that in our Bible passage today? This is a gospel passage. Even when John's words are challenging, even when he's telling his countrymen about what's wrong, look at verse 18. Luke summarizes his teaching and says that John's message is good news. It's gospel. This is good news. It may not have felt like it, but this has been a good news passage here today. Well, how's that the case? Here's how it's the case. Because if John's right, if we are walking away from God, if we're walking away from our Heavenly Father, the Creator who loves us, and then somebody's kind enough to say, listen, You're going the wrong way. He's over there. Turn. Go back. Then that's just about the best news that anybody could ever share. You're running away from God, 
but you can turn. God allows you turns. Anyone who heard John the Baptist preaching that day or those days in that Judean desert had a choice to make. And it's a much more profound version of the choice that I started with. My choice when the GP told me I was overweight. Do I get cross? Or do I get grateful? A lot of them chose to be grateful. They asked John what was needed to change their lives and they got themselves ready for Jesus. They were hungry for God's forgiveness. They wanted to be made new. And there's no way to finish this sermon other than to say, well, what about us? What about you? Maybe you've been a Christian for years and you hear a passage with the word repentance and you think, brilliant, I can coast. I can catch up on my uh, emails there while Christoph's preaching. I can. Repentance is what people do when they become Christians. I... Folks, I'm more and more convinced that I have cause to repent every day of my life. If only my heart wasn't so hard and had some sensitivity to how I was um, failing God and hurting other people. So you might have been a Christian for 50 or 60 years, and I'm asking you today, is God calling you to repent? There might be people here today who've never had that fundamental and decisive and first repentance, that first big turning around of our life to God. That moment where we say, yes, I, I, I have been going my own way. I have, but, but it's, I see it now. And I'm coming back. Whoever you are, whoever I am, Let's, let's hear this. Let's recognize that it's given in love. And let's repent. Let's join together and pray.